Shalom, shalom, and welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's a delight to be here today with, um, with two people I admire so much, not only for their academic scholarship, uh, but for their pioneering work in expanding Jewish learning on a local and national and international level. Um, and the field of Jewish adult learning is in some ways amazing and in some ways uh, small and, um, and evolving and growing. And so the, the small number of organizations that have it as their priority, it's, uh, it's great to find areas of collaboration. And so we're here in the Valley Beit Midrash office with two amazing leaders from, from Spurtis Institute. Um, and let me just tell you what Spurtis Institute is first, if you're not aware. It, it, from their mission statement, is a center for Jewish learning and leadership that invites people of all backgrounds to explore the multifaceted Jewish experience. Spurtis Institute inspires learning, serves diverse communities, and fosters understanding for Jews and people of all faiths. Their recent strategic plan says they work to invigorate contemporary life and communities through applied Jewish learning. We're going to talk about that engage contemporary and emerging questions and issues through serious academic Jewish lenses, utilizing the wisdom of Jewish thought and experiences, build adaptive capacity for a rapidly changing, accelerating world by empowering professionals, leaders, and learners to engage and make significant Jewish impact and increase global access to applied Jewish learning. So we love all of that. We're here with uh, Dr. Dean Bell, who is the Spurtis Institute President and CEO, and Dr. Karen Freeman, who's the Dean and Chief Academic Officer it's a delight to have you both here. Thank you so Thank much you. for having me. And we're so used to doing interviews on Zoom boxes. So it's great to be in a little crunch space here together where we can talk about some important things. So to start, um, Dr. Freeman, why is, why is adult Jewish learning important? I mean, it might be obvious to us. I mean, we often talk about children and youth education and camp and schools and youth programs. And it might be obvious that we want to learn. Um, and yet it is so in many ways underappreciated. If you look at the priority list in the Jewish communal discourse, so why, why is it important? Thanks, Julie. Yeah. It's great to be here, first Thank off. Um, so when I think about adult Jewish learning, I think a lot about it being a lifelong process. It's not something that we're just nourished in childhood and that sustains us for the rest of our lives, but rather it's something that we need to keep feeding and it helps us to continue to make meaning within our lives. And I often think of a poem by Peter Cole um, that maybe I'll share a few stanzas. They talk about great. this sort of seeking of the perfect state. And if we're seekers as adults who continue to seek, what, what does that say for us? And so his poem goes as follows. The perfect state of being human isn't perfection. It's becoming, the Greeks say, ever more real, in nearing but never quite reaching a certain ideal. Like translation, it's deficient, a chronic affection. Perfection for the Kabbalist is reached only when the fortress is breached. To the brokenness, the husk, the other side. So imperfection becomes a guide. Perfection, the feeling philosopher says, suggests an openness to endless change, the self in radical revolution. Within a self, it soon finds strange. The spirit warrior's path to perfection comprises trials involving great fear and allegorical learning to fathom the power passing through one's ear. And so I think for me, as I think about adult learning, we are still on the journey as adults. And so part of our goal is to provide opportunities for obtaining that perfect state through learning, evolving, changing, facing great fear, being open, being broken, but then, you know, coming back. I love that. I love that so much. And um, it is, uh, it is so easy just to feel we've learned what we need to learn. And now we just need to execute. And we don't have to keep learning because we did that already. And, and this doesn't have to go into theological terms. But I think that if one is engaged in process theology and think of God as an ever growing, ever expanding being, 
it would be halachta bedracha, the imitatio day, to also be a part of a process of working towards perfection, working towards, towards growth. Of course, this doesn't have to be theological, but I love that. I love that. It's like an inspiring. And I, and I was just, I was just that something we all know, we shouldn't do this as medical advice, but Alzheimer's, um, one of the most important things to prevent Alzheimer's is to actually uh, think on a synaptical level of constantly how the brain is, um, is making new connections and making new meaning. So this is actually a health, a health priority in addition to being a seeker of meaning. Dr. Bell, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, no, what I'll say is that um, we find in a lot of the work that we've done in adult Jewish learning, both in the programs that we offer, but also in some of the think tanks that you participated in, um, in thinking about adult learning, that it's a field and it's an opportunity. As you suggested at the beginning, we spend a lot of time in what we might call pediatric education, but nourishing, as Karen said, the sort of lifelong interests of adults is really important because adults go through many different changes. They experience so many different things in life and learning is actually a way for them to not only address, but to grow and to engage. And, and we noticed when we did some of our studies, in fact, some of them supported by the Jewish Federation of Chicago, um, that when we asked people about the value of learning, they obviously had very individual kinds of uh, things that they were seeking and they had some things in common. And we noticed for adults, it's really interesting that they're oftentimes learning for the sake of learning. Sometimes they have something very specific they want to address, and I'll, and I'll talk about that in a second, but oftentimes it's actually just the process of learning and engaging, as you say, keeping those synapses open. We know the adult brain sort of freezes in some ways at age 25 or thereabouts, but uh, this offers opportunities for transformative learning and thinking in different kinds of ways. Um, I think another thing that emerges from this, and, and, it, and it gets at the sort of seeking of a perfect state, is that we're oftentimes trying to find community and connection, and we do that through ongoing learning. It's not just for its own sake, but it's actually for other purposes that bring people together. Um, but I think some of the other things that we've, we've noticed in some of the work that we've done is that learning of this sort that is ongoing and creative and seeking helps us to develop our critical thinking skills, helps us to understand different people and different perspectives in new ways. And that really is the crux of why we learn, so that we can really engage with others, we can develop ourselves in the process, but, but we have the opportunity to see other perspectives very easy to get lost in ourselves and to see the world through our own lenses, perhaps without getting too political. That is a bit of why uh, society is so polarized today. We sort of assume that other perspectives and assumptions are erroneous, but learning actually gives us the opportunity, forces us in a kind of haruta way to grapple with how other people are thinking, how they're engaging with the world. And so I think this ongoing learning gives us these, these sort of opportunities to, to engage not only with our minds uh, and our critical thinking, but also in a certain sense with our hearts and our emotions. Like Karen and I like to say that oftentimes our, our learning is really emotional and physical as much as it is intellectual. It really should be a whole body experience. And we find that a lot of people, particularly adults, are really interested in, in engaging in that sort of full measure to really advance themselves. And sometimes the topic matters, sometimes it's the actual engagement with, with the learning process that's important. I love that. You said so much. And just one thing I wanted to pull out to highlight more is if we could bring more of a spirit of curiosity and inquiry to our social discourse, as opposed to just uh, just fire, um, how much we could address uh, a major political and national uh, phenomenon that's growing. So thank you for that. Now, I have to admit my Yitzhahara. I have a big Yitzhahara. I have a big, um, I have a big uh, inclination towards uh, doing something less productive which is um, I love to be idea-centered learning, engage in idea-centered learning rather than learner-centered learning. Uh, and now there's a place for that. There's a place to being idea-centered. But I think we know in Jewish adult learning that we have to be in, in many, many uh, situations learner-centered 
rather than just idea centered. So let me ask you uh, to start with you, Dr. Freeman. What um, what do we know about adult learners? So I think um, we know a bunch of things, but I think the two that stand out for me is one is that they are seeking relevance and contemporary application. And so to start, I think we're not blank slates, especially when we're adults. And so part of what we're looking for is to create meaning, to build upon our own experiences, and then hopefully to take it home in some way. I think when it stays only in the realm of ideas, it might lose its, its relevance, its resonance, its meaning. So we're, we're seeking, but we're seeking with, with an eye towards application. And that application is not necessarily always just the doing, but it has an element of extending beyond the confines of the classroom. Right? And I think that's what um, adults are seeking. They're not usually coming in just completely blank. Right? So are we just adapting to what they want or is that also good? Meaning um, do, how much to the, to the sidelines do we wanna push competency and literacy? to give more space towards relevancy? So I think that um, content matters, right? I think sometimes when we think about learner-centered, we think content doesn't matter. In my view, content matters, but it has to be in conversation with the learner, right? Like I, for example, study political science and history, and I don't remember dates. The dates do not resonate with me. And actually, I'm not sure that it matters. I feel like when I was younger, there was like, what, what happened in this date? Um, actually, what I'd rather have our learners come out with, what are the big themes? What are the things that changed? What are the things that, shook the earth or changed the course of history. And if they don't remember that it was in 1648, that's okay. Um, and that's where the connection is for me between where the learner starts and where our content comes into conversation. And so when I teach text or poetry or other kinds of things, they may not remember the poet or the poem, but hopefully they'll remember the lesson. So not to brag, but I am overflowing with dates. Um, <laughs> I am listening to a podcast now when I jog, which is um, uh, This Day in History. And each day is a two-minute, uh, two-minute uh, blurb on what happened on this date in history. And I try to guess the date before they say it. So I, I was horrible with dates until this podcast. So that is the magic. So just to pick, continue on this theme, um, what are, what are some examples of this work as it as it as we look towards relevancy in adult learning? So I think, um, and maybe I'll, I'll share a little bit about some of the work that we do, but maybe I'll pass it over to talk mm. to Dean in a certain way. But you know, I think what we're thinking about is, for example, we know that um, the environment matters, right? We know that we're in a climate crisis. And so we can learn a lot about the climate crisis, but what are the things that Jewish text traditions, histories can teach us about past responses, but also contemporary choices that we can make and how are they informed by the Jewish values that inform all of our day-to-day our -day work? Um, and how does that, you know, what are the roles of religious institutions, for example, in combating climate change? Um, when, 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 for example, have religious institutions gotten it wrong? And how do we think about those things? And so I think that's an example for me of it's, we wanna learn and use our tradition, not only to better understand the past, but hopefully to change the future. Yeah, no, I would add, and building on what Karen said, um, I've done a lot of studying these days and we'll talk about it later, I presume around concepts of resilience. But one of the things that's really interesting about resilience thinking is that it's different than we might expect. There's actually three main components that I sometimes think about. One is we're more resilient when we're able to take our experiences and our knowledge and make meaning of new experiences. Um, but sometimes holding that mirror up and forcing us to think differently is also an important part of that process. But as Karen said, we all bring experiences and perspectives with us into every circumstance. So part of the learning is not just about the dates and the specific things, but it's how we leverage and transition and translate things that we know into new, into new scenarios. But, but there's another component, which is um, you have to be rooted in tradition. You actually have to understand some of the content. 
you have to not necessarily just be able to think and translate, but you have to have something to work with. And it is that balance that you suggested between the idea center piece and the sort of experiential piece that we talked about. And in the middle, connecting it is what I like to think of as community networks, right? We learn best by connecting with other people. And we can do that both through tradition, like the sort of essentialisms of our, of our tradition, our faith, our intellectual uh, communities as they might be, and making meaning in new ways. And so a community anchors us in a way to be able to explore new ideas and to translate them, but also to think about how we tap into that rich tradition that we already have. And sometimes I think in learning, we, we jettison one or the other, but really to be resilient and to be adaptive as a learner and to continue to grow towards the perfect state, I think one needs to have both of those. Mm -hmm. And that community, that network of learning is, is really what I think holds it together and is a kind of a unique feature of our tradition. I, I think I told you the other day, we, were, um, we recently had a, a session where we had um, many students from different faith traditions and we had introduced to them the idea of Chavruta study. And one of the things that they found so exciting was this ability to debate different positions, but within a framework of their tradition and in the process of developing a sense of connection and cohesion with others. That's really, I think, where the, the important learning happens. Yeah. So Dr. Freeman, I know some of your work these days has been around um, how educators can um, work with communities around the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, what are some of the big barriers in education on that front now? And what are just some of the tools that you're helping to equip educators with around how to overcome those barriers? Sure. Um, so I think the, the issue of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is invariably political. Right? Um, and it's an incredibly heated debate that brings with it, the minute that we even start the conversation, there's the fire that you talked about, right? And a little bit less of curiosity and inquisitiveness. And so Part of what I've heard from educators really is a sort of a typology of, of barriers, one that has to do with knowing enough. So how do we keep up with all the changes, all the things that are happening all the time? And how do we find reliable sources that allow us to teach in a way that is rooted in, grounded in facts or grounded in, in, and contextualized in a much longer history? And every time a crisis flares, I think educators are challenged, right, to keep up with the latest and really understand how this fits into the broader story. The second is that it's very hard to facilitate uh, challenging conversations. And so how do we empower educators to get the skills that they need to bring a, a place of curiosity, to create a, a brave space or a safe space for learners to come in and be open about either not knowing or having strong opinions or challenging their assumptions, and then facilitating that so that it's generative and not combative. I think the other piece is that it's emotional. Um, Jews are connected to Israel in many different ways. And I think both whether we feel love or whether we feel challenged, those are emotions that come into the classroom and those that's even beyond the pedagogy. But I think the biggest thing is that, um, that many said is that many educators are fearful. What happens when I say something not quite right? What happens if I'm taken out of context? Um, what happens when I get that phone call? And I think that phone call is the one that sort of makes us recoil, makes us go backwards. And so part of the challenge I think is how do we create an ecosystem where it's okay to explore our questions within our Jewish educational institutions, right? As opposed to on the playgrounds or in front of CNN, a place where we can be really inquisitive, ask ourselves, flip our lens, look at things from the other side in a way that doesn't feel like it's challenging everything about our connection to Israel. Do we want those passionate emotions to come into the learning space uh, or do we want, or do we wish they didn't, but we just have to deal with the reality that they do? I think that we can't wish away reality. Yeah. Right, and so um, I have very passionate children and I think that sometimes um, that's what's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. um, but I think what we need to do is to figure out how to harness those emotions in order for them to be generative and not for us to shut down. 
I think passion is okay. Um, in fact, I think passion means we care, right? I'm more worried about students that come in who are not passionate, mm -hmm. who don't care, who say like, whatever's happening over there is happening over there. But when I see a passionate student, how do I turn down the temperature just enough mm -hmm. so that they can be open, so that they can hear another perspective, so they can empathically listen? Those are the things that we can harness. And I don't think they're in opposition to passion. I think they are something that can be incorporated. Yeah, I would say a spurt us to build on what Karen was saying. I think one of the hallmarks of our programming has been around what we've lovingly called courageous, crucial conversations. Mm -hmm. The idea that people actually do bring their experience and their passion and their excitement and their knowledge into conversation with other people who have similar, but oftentimes opposing viewpoints. And one of the things that we really try to do at Spurtis, because we're a non-denominational institution, and we sort of value this idea of openness and welcoming and convening of people, is we say, look, we're open to conversations. The idea is one should look at multiple perspectives. And our goal isn't necessarily to convince somebody of quote unquote the truth, but to engage in understanding other people's assumptions and perspectives and deciding for ourselves whether we agree with them or we don't, or where there are holes in them, or where there are things that we might not have thought about before that we can learn as well. So I think if you, to Karen's point, if you come absent that kind of passion, then you're gonna be a passive learner. And you're either going to not change at all because you will just continue to believe the things you believe without listening to and engaging others, um, or you'll just whole scale say, oh, actually I was wrong, so I'm just gonna follow the other person. But that's not right either. We should be challenging ourselves but we should do it in the context of kind of honest, open inquiry. And uh, you know, we've talked for a long time, I think one of the core tenets of Judaism and certainly of the work we do is around questioning. We can't ask questions if we can't sort of challenge preconceptions and think about them and do it in a kind of collegial, communal, civil kind of way, then we failed in our educational work. So part of what we have to do is create that environment where people feel safe. And I know there's a, the safe, safe spaces and brave spaces are loaded terms, but an opportunity for people to feel like they can share their perspectives, they can hear others and are open to doing that. Uh, and that's really where the learning process begins. Because otherwise we just uh, reinforce ourselves. We become sort of soundboards for the echo chambers of things that we already know. And that's not really learning. That's just sort of reinforcing what we, what we think we already know. Yeah, well said. So you win, you win the prize for Nabua because it, just leading up to the pandemic, you worked on scholarship on resiliency and on plagues in Jewish history. Um, so to just pick up on resiliency, on resiliency, can you tell us a little bit about your work there? Yeah, no, it's funny. Well, I'll say something about plagues first because yeah. <laughs> how, how can you not talk about plagues today? Um, but I've been working on natural disasters and responses to natural disasters in, throughout history, particularly in the 17th and 18th centuries. And so um, for me, as I, I was finishing up the work, uh, a press came to me and they said, we'd like you to write a book for us. And I said, well, what's the topic? And they said, plagues. I said, okay, that's not really my thing, but okay. So I ended up doing a book on plagues, which came out literally a year before the pandemic. And the reason I mention that is not only that I get a chance to do podcasts like this and television <laughs> interviews and the medievalist in me suddenly had relevance in the contemporary world, which was very strange. Um, but as I approached these different crises and disasters, um, I met a colleague who was at the Unitarian Theological Seminary that rents space in our building. And uh, he was grappling with similar kinds of things around environmental history. And, and we sort of grasped onto the concept of vulnerability and resilience. And I decided that actually made sense in the context of plagues and other kinds of disasters as a framing way to think about how we understand and respond to these. And so we actually began a process over about six years of exploring vulnerability and resilience in the context of religion. And what it had led us to, I think, is you know, fairly simple and straightforward, but 
I would sort of categorize it as this. When we think about resilience, and resilience is ubiquitous today, right? Everybody talks about it. It's between that and pivot and a few other key words <laughs> of the pandemic that we'll never forget. Um, but I think when most people think about resilience, they tend to think about how do we get back to the good old days, mm -hmm. whatever those might have been and however good and old they might have been. Um, and even when we say we're going to change as a result of things we've experienced, the moment we have the opportunity to do things the way we did them before, that's what we do. Mm -hmm. Remember our adult learners and our adult brains. Um, and so in our minds, that, that's a sort of what I would call simple resilience, the idea of trying to get back to some basic functioning, some normativity in the way that we do things. But that's not enough, because the truth of the matter is nothing ever goes back to the way it was. Uh, and we are never the same as we were before. Every interaction with every change, with every crisis, we actually change and, and grow as adults and as people and as learners. And so we introduced a different concept, which we called complex resilience. And that is the idea of learning and growing through um, disruption and trauma and crisis. It's a kind of an agility that allows us to become different and then to translate those skills into other situations as they emerge. And for us, what was really interesting is that we found that perhaps counterintuitively, there were four basic things that were required to be complexly resilient. And a lot of this work came out of looking at behavioral psychology, but also environmentalism and, and other fields as well. And, and the four things are the following, and they actually have a nice Latin acronym, VITA, which is life. The first is vulnerability. Now, without being vulnerable and open to challenging yourself, but also open to the influence and views of others, you can't actually be truly resilient because then you become hardened and fragile and brittle in a certain way. The second part was around intentionality because we might do all sorts of good things, but if we don't begin to develop a practice of intentional reflection and intentional change, then it won't matter. We won't actually take those lessons with us. The third was around trust. And what I meant by trust really is a sense of building a, a, a cohesive community and instilling relationships with the trustworthiness both for ourselves and for the others we engage with. That's the social networking that I mentioned before that's so important. And the last component was awareness. We actually need to not only be aware of ourselves, that's an important component, but aware of things that are going on in the world around us and how we sort of see those and respond to them. I noticed in the pandemic, we oftentimes ask people questions, you know, how have you changed as a result of the crisis? Um, and I think sometimes it's people have a better self-awareness like I, I used to say, well, I always thought I was an introvert and it really turns out I'm an extrovert. Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't know that before, but there's larger environmental things that we have to see as well. And the pandemic raised a lot of those kind of social and cultural and sometimes even religious concerns that were brewing just below the surface. Mm -hmm. And if we weren't aware of those, we wouldn't know how to respond to them. Mm -hmm. So it's those four components, I think, that create this sort of broader sense of being complexly resilient. Uh, and it won't solve every problem, but it certainly is a key skill um, not just to return to what we had before because things are different and, and we can learn and we can be better, um, but because it gives us an opportunity to, to reflect in new ways that, that I think you can apply in so many other aspects of your life. Wow, and what an amazing challenge for our educational communities to help to create spaces where people can uh, cultivate that resiliency. Um, and it's interesting, if you look at the Midot, the classical Jewish character traits, there isn't really one for resiliency, but they all might be pointing in that direction. If you look at Savalanu being able to kind of bear the suffering of the moment or Bittachon and trust in your Vita um, to cultivate trust and to do that kind of spiritual and self-reflective work to um, be able to handle our, our new moments, which look a lot like the past, unfortunately. I mean, we're back in the Cold War perhaps, right? With Russia just invading Ukraine and we are uh, in a pandemic, which we thought you know was not something emerging just a few years ago and the rise of new extremist groups. And so we have enormous challenges. And I think our tradition has a lot of tools for us to 
wrestle with that. So the last thing I want to I want to ask is um, for those who aren't already familiar with the Spurtis Institute, how what are some ways they can tap in? Obviously, you can go to the website and see the programs they have. But if you both can just share maybe one or two ways that people might tap in. Sure. Um, so since the pandemic, uh, all of our public programs have been online. And so much like this, you can uh, tune into all of our public programs. And I do want to call one to your attention because I think it really resides like within the conversation that we've had. Um, every year we do a critical conversation and the idea is really to bring individuals with differing opinions um, into conversation with one another. We actually did one on immigration. We've done one on climate change. Um, we did one on race and racism within the Jewish community. And this one coming up is really around community responsibility in a time of crisis, looking at uh, our political responses and communal responses to COVID. And the, the purpose of the conversation is to elevate the trade-offs that we had to make as we made different choices and what that says about community responsibility. For example, who do we prioritize? Those who are perhaps aging or young children who had to be home and not in school. Um, how do we think about the, the economic impacts of the of closures or for that matter of opening? Um, and I know we can, we're continuing to navigate these trade-offs. There is not sort of a magic way to, to keep everyone whole. And so part of the conversation is really thinking about how do we understand our trade-offs and specifically as they relate to lessening suffering, um, mm -hmm. caring about people, thinking about um, minority groups or individuals that are at risk and how do we support them in this time? And what are the really challenging choices that we had to make throughout and what could have been, have been done differently? Um, but also, what do we, how do we take these, this moment of crisis to learn about caring for vulnerable communities in the future? It's interesting. There can be an illusion that um, these trade-offs are these rare moments in life, but actually we're constantly making those decisions of how to spend our time, how to allocate our resources, uh, what to engage our human faculties in. And so I, that's so, so critically important. And the, the triage questions are not just for doctors and the parental questions are not just for parents of young children. This is for all of us, so that's, 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 that's amazing. Yeah, I would say, I mean, similarly, uh, not just come to a program, but enroll and with some friends and colleagues in a certificate program or degree program. All of our programs, as Karen likes to say, sit at the intersection of theory and practice. So we'll have the idea-centered component, but also the learner-centered component of taking things back and using them, trying them, uh, making a difference with them. And so I think, you know, when you get into, we, we hear from our students all the time that they love the fact that they have deep Jewish content, but they also think about how they can apply these things in their day-to-day lives that they have personally as well as professionally. But there's something really valuable about learning with other people too and bringing it back to a community. We have some wonderful initiatives in different parts of the country where students come together in sort of mini cohorts and, and they change, as Karen said before, the ecosystem of the community. And so uh, I guess what we encourage people is both individually to explore some of the programs we offer on a one-off basis, but think about the sort of larger, longer-term commitments as well. And, um, the idea of building a community of learners, uh, not a community of practice necessarily, but a community of learning that leads to a community of practice. And I think, uh, you know, we're, we're open and welcoming and uh, we have really a remarkable range of faculty that come from so many different backgrounds, so many different levels of expertise and experience. But our students are really our great treasure too, because they bring a, really a passion for the learning, a care for what they're doing, and, and really an open a way of engaging with others. And so uh, that is the spirit of secret sauce, as they say. And so we encourage people to participate at every level they're interested in. And uh, Aaron and I or any of our staff would be happy to talk to folks if they have an interest in our program. Great, what a wonderful and exciting challenge and opportunity to think about what, what certificate program or degree program you can embark on to challenge yourself to grow on the next level in your leadership and in your own personal growth. Thank you both so much. for the Thank you so much for too. joining us.